Here at Political Playlist, we like to talk about the future of politics, because as we all know, there's a situation unfolding in Israel and in Palestine and potentially throughout the Middle East that is concerning to all of us, given the atrocities. So today we're going to dedicate this entire episode to these atrocities, to the potential solutions for them, and specifically in our world what the youngest members of Congress are saying, because these federal leaders have the opportunity to shape our future, and that future really needs some reshaping. Welcome to today's episode of Political Playlist Happy Hour. Political revolution of the millennial. Welcome to Political Playlist. <laughs> All right, are we ready, guys? Happy Hour. Happy, Happy Hour. hour. <laughs> Hey, everybody, and welcome to Political Playlist Happy Hour. I'm Michael Kristoff. I'm Anna Muskie-Goldwyn. And I'm Anthony Barquette. Well, it is uh, good to be back with you guys. Two out of three of us have head colds, as you can probably hear. But before we get into the more serious matters of today, I would like to say congratulations to Anna for officially getting engaged. Now that you have a ring I on your the, finger that sort of rock. fits. It fits. It fits. It's like blinding my eyes. It hurts. It's, it yes. Hurts. But please put it down. Yes. There's quite a reflection. Right. You're jealous. Yeah. Very. Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. You're not? No. I'm happy you for you. You don't thrilled. want a big rock? You don't want a big rock no. on your finger? I just can't wait for another wedding to attend. <laughs> oh, these weddings are getting expensive. Please do yours local. Honestly, <laughs> like me too. I don't even know. Yeah. We haven't gotten that far. If I can't so Uber, I'm not coming. Yeah. I, you probably could. Yeah. Okay. Well, guys, today's uh, podcast is is obviously a bit of a sober one, no pun intended, because we are devoting the entire episode to discussing these horrific terrorist attacks that have happened and are continuing to happen in Israel. You know, as we dive into the very grim reality here facing Israel as well as many of our Jewish friends and family here at home, we want to just sort of say a couple of things. And I think first at the outset of this, we want to say that what occurred over the weekend, in no uncertain terms, was a brutal act of terror against innocent civilians. You know, this wasn't a military campaign. This wasn't a retaliation for a previous attack. This was an act of terror, plain and simple. What isn't simple about this are the politics surrounding the Middle East and surrounding geopolitical affairs that, you know, our country faces and, and the world faces. Uh, so, again, to to just say this very clearly, these terrorist attacks are not complex. They are black and white. What happened was evil and wrong. There there are no two sides to that. but. What is far more complex and, and certainly not black and white are the solutions to these problems. You know, these problems are, are, are similar to the ones that we faced in the uh, immediate aftermath of 9-11. They're incredibly complex. There, there are no easy solutions or answers. And I think, you know, certainly with regard to us and 9-11, hindsight has provided us a, a very different perspective on, on things. And so really our goal always at Political Playlist is to, to have thoughtful conversations about different perspectives on things and different points of view, which means 
many sides and sometimes sides that you don't agree with, sometimes opinions you don't agree with. But the whole idea is to endeavor ourselves to be better informed, to to be better understanding of these complex issues. So the goal today is really to to do three things. I think first, we want to give people a better understanding of exactly what is taking place over there, because I think a lot of folks are still, you know, probably a little unsure, given all the things they've seen on social media and in the news, you know, what exactly all of this means and and how all of this relates to each other. We've heard a lot about context, and this isn't about giving context so that we can both sides this. This is about understanding just what is going on from a larger picture. And then secondly, we want to talk about what our young leaders in Congress are saying and doing about this. And and third, I think we want to talk about why this affects everyday Americans here at home, what, what the impacts of this are on us, in our politics, and, and in our way of life. So with all that being said, Anna, do you want maybe want to just sort of start to walk us through, you know, in, in broad strokes, what has happened here and and just some of the some of the underlying elements that are going on? Yeah. Let me do like your quick one minute refresher on conflict in the Middle East. No, but in all seriousness, I do think it's really important to have context, not just for what is happening right now, of which there's a lot of sort of conflicting context, I would say. Mm-hmm. If you're scrolling through social media, but I think to actually have context historically is something that I've been craving. And so I feel um, that it's important that we provide that and we provide a sense of what led up to this, not just in the last four years, but in general. So just indulge me while I go through this really quickly. And hopefully we can all learn something and maybe contextualize our own points of view in this moment. So This conflict dates back to the end of the 19th century, which for anyone who doesn't know how to do the math is 1800s. And then flash forward to the end of World War II, after the Jews obviously went through the largest atrocity in history until now, the state of Israel was created in 1948 on the tales of World War II. And now eventually what happened was that Israel was separated from Palestine, and there were 750,000 Palestinians who were displaced. And the area was divided into three parts, Israel, occupied by Israelis, and the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, occupied by Palestinians. So over the years following that, Israel got into a big conflict with Egypt, which I won't go into too much depth about. But even with that conflict being resolved with Egypt, the question of Palestinian self-determination remained. So there was an uprising in the 80s, which were followed by the 1993 Oslo Accords that were intended to mediate and set up a framework for Palestinians to govern themselves in both the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. So then flash forward to 2006, when Hamas wins the Palestinian Authority's parliamentary elections and gains control of the Gaza Strip. That's kind of where today's story really starts. Now, the U.S. did not acknowledge Hamas's victory because they were even considered a terrorist group then. Ever since there have been clashes coming head to head under the Trump administration, we went sort of more the pro-Israel route as a country, and we actually canceled fund for UN relief that went to Palestinian refugees. The U.S. moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which was condemned by many Palestinians. 
And then in 2020, the Israeli government evicted Palestinian families from East Jerusalem to hand land over to Jewish families. And people might remember there was a bunch of protests that came up out of that and led to airstrikes in Gaza, first to Hamas sites, but then to residential areas. So then we come to what we've experienced now, which is Hamas invading Israel across the Gaza border and slaughtering Jewish people, taking hundreds of people hostage. And what's interesting about this and why people are comparing it to 9-11, I think first and foremost, is that Israel is actually known for having one of the best intelligence services on the planet. And we often in America see 9-11 as an intelligence failure. And I think Israel sees this as an intelligence failure on their part. So Israelis are continuing to die. Now Palestinians are continuing to die. And the sort of general consensus of the international community is that the main concern for this, unfortunately, is the increased loss of life over the coming days, weeks, or however long. And I think what has been, that was an excellent background there. Which I think, no, that was, I, I was actually, yeah, I wanted to correct a few things, but go ahead. Correct? Oh, go well, ahead and correct. What well, I, 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 let me just sort of jump in and, and quickly sort of reiterate, you know, something that you touched on here, which is for those of you who don't know, Hamas is a terrorist organization. They have, as you said, in 2007, became the ruling party. But much like we classify the Taliban in Afghanistan, they're they're a similar similarly classified terrorist organization. So while they are this sort of de facto ruling party militant brigade, they are unequivocally a, a terrorist organization. And so all of these attacks were perpetrated by Hamas. And I think that is very important to keep in mind as we discuss the idea of a nation state being run and led by a political party that is a terrorist organization. Anthony. No, no, no. I, I mean, this is all great information and not that I wanted to correct anything, Anna, but I think I just wanted to add a couple mm -hmm. things. I think it's important for people to know that there haven't been elections since Hamas took wow. uh, control of the government. You know, I, I mean, I know that. Yeah. Not, not, uh, not actual elections. Yeah. Not, no. not crazy in third world countries, but you know, I mm -hmm. think it's an important fact to know. And maybe just to put this in size, like Gaza is basically this for United States here, the size of Omaha, Nebraska, I was reading, but wow. two, they have 2 million residents. It's considered one of the poorest places in the world. And most of the, most of their population is under 19. I also want to say this terrorist attack happened on the 50th anniversary of Yom, Yom, the Yom mm -hmm. Kippur War as well. So, hmm. you know, talking about not just this being a very planned attack, but doing it on a very holy holiday and mm -hmm. week, you know, is, is something to take into account here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things that a lot of people have been talking about is, okay, well, you know, how did nobody see this, right? You mentioned the intelligence failure, Anna. You know, the idea that Israel is one of the best militaries in the world, one of the best intelligence networks in the world, combined with the United States. And, and yet it seems as though so our government, their government was really caught off guard with this. What have you been hearing and reading about with regard to that? Have, have, have people been giving explanations as to how they didn't. So, I mean, if I could just jump in there, yeah, I think this is definitely one of the thoughts of like, how did this happen? 
Yeah. And definitely Israeli national security. Like, I, I don't know if you guys have heard how they actually, how Hamas did this, but I can walk you through pretty quickly because I didn't yeah. know all of these details. Yeah. So basically they're the, the, like the border has basically a no-go zone with fences that are about six meters tall. And then they have these observation towers. So what they ended up, what Hamas did was they took drones, flew them over these observation towers and bombed them. And then they coordinated other rocket fire and manpower at the same time. So they fired about 3000 rockets into the country, wow. you know, and then at the same time, they had hang gliders flying across the border over. Then they had explosives along the, this six meter fence that I mentioned. And then as soon as that was blown up, they had like boulder bulldozers come through and widen the fence. Wow. So that allowed for like larger vehicles or people on motorcycles to go through. And I was like, that was pretty wild to me to see, because while Israel has probably some of the highest security, you know, when you get bombarded at one time, right? Like how do you end up, especially right. off guard, how are you going to fully protect it? I just want to add in, just as you were saying that, it's like running through my mind how insane that must have yeah. been for the people yeah. living in this area. I mean, we've all heard about the music festivals, these different kibbutzes that had been invaded. And I wanted to go back to something that you had brought up earlier, Michael, when you were talking about what we wanted my, my to do preamble today. your little <laughs> your little monologue which was Lauren, great, look out Lawrence O'Donnell one thing that not to say that I'm pushing back on it but one thing I wanted to clarify I think that you had said is this idea of discourse and conversation discourse and conversation yes when we are talking about sort of what this means politically and what these potential solutions are but just hearing Anthony say that and sort of thinking about things that we've all been watching and hearing and especially having many Jewish friends who are really struggling right now. I think that anger is part of the discourse and sadness is part of the discourse and all of these things when you're talking about what Anthony just described happening at that border. And so I just wanted to kind of, as we go into what our young politicians are saying, because I have sort of two, mine is I have two examples of what I think are interesting way to be talking about this and maybe one that's like a bit too overly political. But but I, I you know, and we'll talk more about kind of our responses, but I just wanted to clarify that like yeah. when we hear what Anthony just said that they did at that border in these communities that, by the way, were peacefully living next to each other. It was not perfect by any means. Right. There was certainly shit happening in both of these governments that was really, really messed up. But the people were friends and they were neighbors. And I just I I can't like overestimate the feeling that right now, like anger is OK when we're talking about that part of it and Absolutely. the yeah. the political stuff and the solution stuff and all of that. And when we talk about what politicians are doing, which is what we're going to do. That is a measured conversation. But I think anger, sadness, rage, frustration, confusion, all of that very much has a place in this conversation at this specific moment. 
and let's face it, Hamas is using their own population as pawns. Exactly. And exactly. Right. And right. they have been govern governing the area. Right. You know, like we saw some comments on our social media already about this area being an open air prison, right? Because Israel controls the majority of it and they control the supplies and air. I mean, you know, energy as well there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the tough part is you're like, you've allowed this group to control it for so long. They receive over a billion dollars from Middle East states and in, in humanitarian. I'm right. saying that's enough, but I'm sure a lot of that is going into other pockets here and not helping the state when it's, you know, one of the poorest places in the world. Yeah. Well, you, you guys bring up two things that I want to get to eventually in this conversation, which are, you know, the involvement of Iran in supporting Hamas. That's my historically. tweet. That's my tweet. That's oh, good. Okay. And then the second thing is I want to talk to you guys about just this sort of really unprecedented rise in uh, anti-Semitism that we're seeing, yeah. which mm -hmm. I think relates to your some of your points, Anna. But well said. What, Anna, you want to read us uh, something? Yeah. So I have, if you guys will indulge me, I have two tweets. The first one, we don't even have to discuss because I think it's mm -hmm. kind of dumb, but I wanted to draw it in contrast to the other one. Both of these tweets are from Republicans. And to what I was just saying, and what I think Michael had said earlier in this episode, what you had said in the video we posted on social media, this to me just sort of illustrates these points about anger about the situation, measured conversation about the political ramifications. Mm. Okay, here's the first one. President Trump, in capital letters, was the capital first U.S. president to visit the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, Israel. Israel has no greater ally in the White House than the Trump administration, and his commitment to the Jewish people never wavered. We need Trump, capital letters, back in the White House. Okay. Wow. A lot. Byron Donalds. Ding, ding, ding. Wow. You must have seen that. <laughs> wow. Did you, or did you just guess? I, I didn't, but I, I mean... The far right has been bringing Trump up more. Yeah. And I just want to say, like, I'm, I'm to all my Republican friends who are for Trump, who are, who are Jews. I mean, look at his social media. Yeah. The only thing this president, this former president is talking about are his ratings. Yeah. He's not even talking he doesn't about the give situation. A shit. He gives zero shits about yeah. the situation. Yeah. I mean, just and look at Charlottesville. Yes, yeah, you know, and, look at. And I was like, oh. and these are. I was like, the people who are talking about it so much of my friends on Instagram. I'm like, the guy that you love so much isn't even fucking mentioning it. Yeah, right. Yeah, he's talking about his so, polls. So I don't even want to really indulge this with a conversation because I think it's frankly like the completely wrong thing to be saying in this moment. But I wanted to bring it up because I think people should know to what Anthony was just saying that. This is like party aside. This is about the discourse, right? Mm, and I think yeah. that that is the incorrect discourse. But I will read you my second tweet, which we can actually talk about, which I think is a good discourse coming from and, a politician. And by the way, I think this whole discourse idea goes back to the support of like Palestine and this other fight you're like this was a terrorist act that happened yes people, yes right like right. It's, you know it's it's hard to get in defending the actions of these people right right yes and i think so. people are starting to try to course correct things that came across as that but here's here's the quote the tweet iran wants control of the middle east russia wants control of europe china wants to invade taiwan and control asia 
North Korea wants to control South Korea. If America removes itself from the global stage, then those countries will fill the vacuum. Wow. Ooh. From from a Republican? Yeah. I, I would vote for this person. Please tell me it's someone good. Gallagher. <laughs> that's a great that's a great quote. It's Dan Crenshaw. Wow. wow. OK, so, that's a good quote. Well, this done, is Dan. to me. And he said this on Fox News. This was yeah. a video. I agree with him. It seems you guys do, too. I think yeah. that this is the political discourse that we should be having. And I am curious if this statement and sort of what it is talking about in terms of the response to what is going on in Israel, if it will have any impact on the Republican holdouts who don't want to send funding to Ukraine. Yeah. Um, because I think that the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I will not say is synonymous with what has happened in Israel. It was more military focused, but 10,000 Ukrainian civilians have died. There has been evidence of violence, et cetera. And I think that a person cannot come in and say, we should be sending aid to Israel, but we should not be sending aid to Ukraine. Right. So I think that Dan Crenshaw, what he is saying here is what politicians should be talking about, which is what does this mean for the larger conversation? And Michael, you had mentioned Iran. I think this is where we can talk about Iran. I'll just start off and then, you know, you guys jump in. But Iran is a well-established patron of Hamas and other extremist groups. And what is the concern is that Iran might want to expand this war and could very easily do so because they back Hezbollah, which would bring basically the war beyond the Israeli-Palestinian border, potentially into Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And that this whole idea of like destabilization is what a country like Iran needs in order to have power. And that is what Dan Crenshaw, who we should just note is Republican from Texas, very well known, tends to be very conservative. But I think especially when talking about foreign policy, he is a straight shooter and he does. He's a former, you know, he's a veteran. He has experience in this in this area. And this if you want to talk about there's the emotion, which I think is valid and we should all be talking about this. But then there are the political and foreign policy ramifications of this. And Iran is at the center of that. Yeah. Well, I, so I've God, I, I could do a whole episode on this, but let me see if Let's I can not, let, but... let me see if I can parse it down a little bit. I think what I still have is, some tears I want to shed. So let's, yeah, you know. I, I think what is fascinating to see is during all of the during much of the Ukraine war, Republicans have been more reticent to take up the mantle of what is classical Reagan conservatism, foreign policy, military intervention. Right. And we've seen the irony in that Democrats have been the ones who have been promoting democracy and defending, you know, the the freedom of of these countries in a in a military way, which, you know, pr prior to this, it's funny, I was listening to a, a, an interview with Adam Kinzinger, and he was actually saying this very Your thing boy. where he he was like, my guy, he was like, it's amazing. He's like, I now know that Democrats actually are for freedom. They are the party of freedom way more so than Republicans and right now. And so I think what is so interesting is that I wonder if this very, very visceral imagery and stories and coverage that we're seeing from this horrific terrorist attack is actually going to motivate more 
in the Republican Party to get on board with aid to both Israel and subsequently Ukraine for that very reason that, oh, all of a sudden now we're we're fighting for democratic values on now multiple fronts in Europe and the Middle East. And so is this now just piling on to the point where, you know, Republicans can't avoid this? Yeah, we're right? the big brother. To the, yeah, we're the big brother to the world. The U.S. is the big brother to the world. Mm -hmm. And we have to stay involved in order to keep our dominance. Yeah. But I, I kind of want to stay on the Iran topic because, mm. you, you know, Anna, you mentioned Hezbollah. Like mm -hmm. an attack by Hezbollah won't occur without Iranian approval. Mm -hmm. Right. So Hezbollah is like an extremely close ally of Iran. And, and, then, and just to give people context, mm. Hezbollah, again, designated a terrorist organization that is in Lebanon, which is to the north of Israel. Yeah. And I mean, it was reported that Iran did provide like operational consultation and expertise. I even hate saying those words because I'm like, it's okay, like, what so does that guys, mean? Yeah. Yeah. What does that even mean? But I think what is going to be interesting and it's going to be interesting here is Israel is going to probably play a much larger role in the stance against Iran. And mm. As soon as Iran was coming back into, I think, the world picture, it's mm -hmm. now going to go dark again, mm -hmm. right? Everyone just allowed them to like get back into the world, the economy, and it's going to get shut down. And I think Israel will probably focus on target, you know, doing airstrikes on Iranian targets in various countries, whether that's Syria, Iraq, mm -hmm. and maybe even Iran itself. That and would be not great. So I, I have a... But now they're probably going to be a, you know. Yeah, no, now there's a total, it. especially if intelligence comes out that this was directly, you know, either financed, subsidized, whatever by Iran, which there still has, there's been this kind of like vague language, like you said, but the kind of definitive evidence that this was pushed by Iran has yet to come out. If that does, I think that we're talking about something much bigger for sure. And I think, you know, the other thing, the one of the big talking points that has been sort of floating on the right here, and when I alluded to, you know, sort of restraint in judgment in terms of drawing conclusions and, and you know, saying these things that are not based in fact, one of the things that has been said is with the recent Iranian uh, hostage negotiation deal, a prisoner swap, you know, there was funds that were lawfully generated funds from oil uh, sales that had then subsequently been frozen through sanctions that were then unfrozen as part of this release that then were they they were mandated that they have to go to humanitarian aid. So a lot of politicians on the right, I think, rather rec recklessly, I might add, have, you know, tried to draw the conclusion that, oh, well, this, you know, hostage negotiation, hostage swap, this money now went to fund this this attack. And and there there hasn't been any evidence of that. And I think, you know, making those kinds of judgments is is where we get into that kind of dangerous rhetoric zone. But I, I want to make a prediction here. And and this might be it's it's a political prediction, but also a, a military one. We have the United States military has moved an entire carrier strike force to the Mediterranean. And what that means is that we have an enormous Navy and Air Force presence in the region. And 
part of this is as a uh, protection to Israel, but it's also in anticipation of potential strikes from Hezbollah, as you mentioned, mm. from the north, as well as Palestinian retaliation from the south. So I, my prediction is that we are going to see American military intervention. We're going to see American-led airstrikes, potentially in Lebanon, definitely mm. in Gaza and 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 in the region. And I think that we are going to see very definitive action from this administration from a military standpoint. And my question to you guys is, you know, what do you think that's going to do to our political discourse? Because I think it's actually going to unite. I think it's going to unite. And I think it's also going to make uh, Biden look much stronger than I think a lot of people perceive him to be right now. I think it will. And I also think that, mm. I mean, you're even seeing it happen with Republicans right now with the speaker, right? Like, mm-hmm. if this hadn't happened, they were prepared to fucking drag this thing on and make right. it, you know, full on like real housewives of Congress. And <laughs> still would be oh, a great show, by the way. By the way, <laughs> did we just come up with a great show? <laughs> Got a pitch. Yeah. No, but honestly, like they were ready to draw it out into like the biggest, I mean, I will say, you know, we are fans of Nancy Mace. We think that she has been an interesting politician to follow. Her whole thing where she wore the Scarlet A and made like, I don't know if you guys saw this video, made a whole statement. Like, it's too much. It's too much. It's like she's jumped the shark. Making me upset, to be honest. It was making me pretty upset. But that's all to say, like, that would have been times a million if they didn't have real shit to deal with. And what is annoying is they always have real shit to deal with. Right. Yeah. It's just it's not circulating on social media all of the real shit that they right. have to deal with every day. So no one's putting pressure on them. But because of this, you see Jim Jordan acquiescing to Steve Scalise, who had got the most votes as nomination for speaker. Right. Thank God Republicans, that it's not Jim Jordan. You know, we have to figure this out because like our government can't do anything without Congress much further than this and so to your point michael i unite i think is maybe an overly optimistic word but i would definitely see this becoming a turning point for like the demeanor of our congress specifically and and this is why though these politicians on the far left and the far right when they play with our government in this way it can be catastrophic i mean look in the time we don't have a speaker, the largest atrocity against Jewish people since the Holocaust happens. Right. And Insane. we don't have a leader in our country. Yeah. Right. Which I mean, means we can't Insane. provide more aid. Can't provide Biden has things. he can. Yeah. Biden has done everything that he is able to without Congress approval right now. The well, only thing we can do is denounce what happened. Wow. You know? So yeah. and and that's Great what point. people need to realize with our government is you need to stop playing these dumb games. But I do agree with you, Michael, and I think there will be some uniting that happens here. I think what ends up though, like Hezbollah, right? They were definitely behind this. This is so sad for me to say since I'm Lebanese and I love Lebanon, Beirut, like it's such a beautiful country. But when you're controlled by a terrorist organization, you know, you especially one that is actually so skilled as Hezbollah now. Right. I mean, they are some of the best trained, best equipped terrorist organizations in the world. But they're playing a massive field. They're not just playing the Gaza Strip, right? They're playing the entire Middle East and probably various other countries around the world. And I doubt they have a lot of money since the 
you know, Lebanon's currency has lost 95% of its value, but we're going to see that shift in that side, right? Between Hezbollah, Iran, and the Palestinians. Yeah. So totally. I have a question for you guys. Do you think that Israel wants to control the Gaza Strip after this? I I mean, I I I think think they want to wipe it out. Well, okay, wait. So can we have a bit of like a emotional discussion? Yeah. I think that like that idea of them wanting to wipe it out, I think this is where we need to start thinking about how we're talking about the situation. Mm -hmm. That like they want to wipe it out. Maybe Netanyahu wants to. But I think that what has been conflated in this whole discussion and what makes me like so annoyed at social media is just this idea of like the the Israeli government does not speak for the Israeli people, all the Israeli people. And Hamas um, doesn't and speak And Hamas for certainly like more any, so, like I would government. argue. Yeah. Exactly. So like, you know, Donald Trump does not speak for AOC. Right. right. So so I think that And like, let me tell you, vice versa. Okay. <laughs> what is so frustrating, I mean to your question, Anthony, like I don't know. I think, yeah, probably the Israeli government wishes the Gaza wasn't fucking there. But that's been this right. issue since the 1800s, right? Like, that yeah. that's the issue, is that neither of them want the other to be there. But what has evolved is that their people have learned how to live in peace. And their governments are fucking it all up. And I think that, like, the people in this situation are the ones who are suffering, as they do in every war. It is the people, it is the children, it is the families, it is the young people who are trying to create a better future for their country. It is all of these people are left dead, taken hostage, family members dead, home destroyed, whatever. And it doesn't like, yeah, it doesn't fucking matter what the governments want because what matters is what's happening to the people. And so I don't believe that an Israeli who lives along the Gaza Strip thinks the Gaza shouldn't exist because they've you know, lived as neighbors with these people. Yeah. So I want to, I, I mean, I, I agree. Like, I actually don't think the Israelis want the Gaza Strip, uh, but like Michael, you made an interesting point. You're like, it's going to be decimated, you know, after this. And so my sort of question is as Netanyahu here, like, how do you almost not uh, like perform those strikes? Right? Well, You've just had the worst massacre happen. You have to, right? You have to, And he is is united his very fractured government mm -hmm. right now. You know, I thought, so there is a great, a very interesting, thoughtful op-ed from Nicholas Kristof. Not related, sadly. You wish. Oh, wow. I wish. He's great. New York Times op-ed writer who wrote about this, you know, saying that like, kind of summing up everything that we're talking about right now, which is that, you know, the enemy is Hamas. The enemy is not the Palestinian people more or yes. less, right? Sure, a lot of them have this hatred that they have mm-hmm. been, you know, the, the propaganda has spun a hatred for for Israel from them. But, you know, you talk about most of the population is under 19 years old. So imagine what you know, what this is going to do from an indoctrination standpoint to that young population, right? There's no way that that Nehu and Israel, however just they might be, there's no way they're not going to level Gaza. 
with airstrikes. They're yeah. they're going yeah. to to level the full force of the Israeli military. And it's not our place to say whether that's right or wrong, but but that's likely what's going to happen. And so what is that going to do to a population that is in their teens? And, mm-hmm. you know, I think about, you know, the the lessons that we have learned from Afghanistan and Iraq, right, and, and our 20-year involvement there, and what that has done to a, a large part of the population, you know, I, I think it's a it's such a delicate it's a it's a very delicate situation. So I, I also kind of just thinking about, you know, with these airstrikes happening and once again, if Hamas was not in control right. of the area, it, this would be a very different story. But, you know, I was kind of thinking about this where I was like, why are civilians not like getting out as soon as this happens? Right. And then I was like, well, maybe I don't know how their social media is or their TV or if they even have it and yeah. what that's telling them as well. Right. And just as we sort of live in this vacuum where we go on our social media and everyone's maybe, you know, pro this or pro that and, and whatnot, and everyone's posting the same quote from everyone, the, the same mm-hmm. person. Right. But, and I was thinking, I, I wonder what these, Hamas like like terrorists are like are they looking at their social media going we're winning right that we're mm. we're winning this fight right now well, so we have to keep doing it. Part of the problem is that you know the the Palestinian civilians can't leave yeah. right that 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 yeah. sort of part one is that they are literally surrounded on all sides they can't leave. Well, and I do. And, there have been reports that the IDF, the Israeli Defense Fund, or is it Defense Fund? No, not fund. The force, Israeli defense force, but they're um, well funded. Ha- yeah, has been issuing warnings to mm-hmm. areas in Gaza yeah, that are going yeah. to be stricken. Yeah. But the problem is that, like to your point, Michael, Gaza is the size of Manhattan. It's like right. you can't; they have nowhere to go. And right. so, I think that it's people have bomb shelters. People are trying to stay away from windows. But like it, you can't just be like, oh, this one office is Hamas. Like we're going to get that one well, office, right? And, and in classic terrorist fashion, you know, all of the Hamas leaders are well hidden yeah. and well fortified. Amongst you know? residential areas uh, too. Exactly. And and that's their whole, that is the evil of, of, of that terrorist yeah. mindset is that they're using their population as literally a human shield. Yeah. I just wanted to, before we start wrapping up, I wanted yeah. to just comment on something that Anthony said that I think is really important was we don't know what they're seeing on social media, mm. but we all know by now what we're seeing on social media. Yeah. What do you and make of that? I think that there I have two thoughts on this. My first mm-hmm. is that I think social media can be a really wonderful place to find community. And I think that particularly for my Jewish friends, I think that I have seeing that social media is a place where they feel they can express themselves, where they feel they can find support. I've DM, you know, people who I know are deeply rooted in their Jewish tradition, and they talk about how receiving messages or seeing posts really helps. So that's one thing is I think that it is a place to where you can find community. I also think it's a place where you can find information, but it's also a place where you can find a lot of disinformation. Mm-hmm. And the New York Times did a whole report on all of the, there was like a video that was said to be Israel striking Gaza, but it was a video game. So yeah. the PSA here wow. is like, 
check your sources. I think especially if you're posting quotes from people, even if the quote resonates with you, maybe look at who that person is. Look at their profile. See if their general vibe agrees with yours. Because I think that we're getting to this point where people might be looking into profiles, looking into quotes, looking into sort of ideologies that are so specific to this situation, but there's a larger conversation maybe that they're forgetting. And so I think that it's a great place that if you want to express yourself, great. I have been a little bit, and this might be a controversial thing to say, a little bit had difficulty with some of the posts saying, if you're not posting, like, you don't care, you're not showing support. And I think that everyone interacts with social media differently. I personally have reached out to friends of mine who I know might be taking this particularly tough, which I think is a valid route to go if you don't want to be posting a lot. And I think that we should allow everyone to cope with this differently. Nobody thinks that this is a small deal. Nobody thinks that this isn't something worth paying attention to. But people's fear is very real. And I respect that. And we have to respect when people are afraid. Sometimes, you know, that can lead to emotions that are really valid and maybe expressed in a way that might, you know, be difficult for others to understand. I, I mean, I hate to say there's a silver lining to all of this, but I think this has brought a massive realization to people who knew, honestly, nothing about Hamas. Didn't yeah. even know it was a terrorist organization, like where the Gaza Strip was or Israel in general. And I just, I mean, I, I don't want to admit this, but it was Saturday night and I was by myself and I went down a wormhole of everything and just seeing what people were posting, but also then reading about like everything going on. And I would say the last five days have just strictly been that it's been really depressing, but it's actually great. I've learned so much more in the last five days than I ever have Mm -hmm. about this crisis. And I've ordered books now and I'm hoping that's that shift has come to the people who never speak up. And I think like my takeaway, and I want to sort of end with a question to you guys, which is that I think all of this has perhaps made me realize, you know, as somebody who is Catholic, just how prevalent anti-Semitism is in, in the world and also Mm -hmm. in this country and, and the rise of it. And so the and question how casual, that, how casual how, and yes. how that casualness yeah. is amplified when something like this happens. Yeah. That every time someone comes out and says that a Jewish Jewish people are in control or Jewish people right. have all this money or whatever, that is the I just want to quickly come back to this, that in yeah. the Hamas covenant, which was released in 1988 when they started. They talked about a holy war that was divinely ordained and scripturally sanctioned, and that covenant is in Hamas's DNA. And what they talked about is they had all of these conspiracy theories that have been existing literally since the 1800s around Jewish people and their alleged superhuman influence and power over mankind. So that conspiracy theory, whether it's you making a joke about you know, someone not wanting to pay the dinner, they happen to be Jewish and you conflate the two together and you make it part of their identity. That's that's the micro thing that is reflected of the macro thing that has existed for centuries that now has been a part of the grooming of these young men, specifically in Hamas, who believe 
that that is what Jewish people are after. And so the casualness is not, Mm. and that, like, we Mm. have to understand that. And by the way, the casualness against Muslim people, the casualness against Asian people, like, whatever it is, the casual flippant comment that you might make, that someone in your family might make that is a joke, it has real world roots. It has historical roots. And somewhere, some place, someone doesn't see that as casual. Someone sees that as a call to war. Yeah. Before we, can I just plug an organization because I think yeah. we should try to get actionable items out of this. And we'll post this on social media as well. But an organization that is incredibly vetted, incredibly amazing is AmeriCares. If people don't know what AmeriCares is, Mm. it's a humanitarian organization that works directly with grassroots organizations in different conflict zones, in different natural natural disaster zones. And I wanted to specifically just read what they've been doing in Israel. And this is literally from an email that I was sent today. So straight from the source. Since Israel was attacked on October 7th and counterstrikes began, UN agencies have reported more than 1,900 lives have been lost in Israel and Gaza and 260 people have been displaced. Half of the health centers operated by the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees are not providing primary care services as of October 11th. Tens of thousands of families are in need of food, water, shelter, and hospitals are running out of fuel. AmeriCares believes health is a human right, irrespective of geography, and is providing assistance to those most in need. They are talking to humanitarian organizations based in Israel to understand how they can increase access to medicine and medical supplies, and support health programming through those affected by the crisis. It is also working with a longtime partner called Anera, which is responding to the need for medicines and medical supplies in Gaza, and they are funding antibiotics, intravenous fluids, as well as medications for chronic health conditions for maintaining vital support. So the list goes on, but that's what they're doing in Israel. It's what they're doing in Gaza. If you want to send money somewhere, there's so much on social media that is great about emotion, about history, about all of this. There are organizations that are going to be doing things to help victims on both sides of this border, the civilians that really need it, that don't deserve what is happening to them. Yeah. And by the way, you don't necessarily need to be donating money. Could be sharing it with a friend. Share with a friend. We're going to post this. Please share it. And I just want to say for myself, like we are with the people who want peace and the families and the young people and everyone who's trying to make a better future. And let's keep remembering that. So before Michael closes us off, I just wanted to say one last thing for one of our young politicians on give him a little kudos. Corey Mills from Florida. This is a developing story, but he flew over to Israel and has got 32 Americans and bring them back. Wow. Right now. And he did this when we left Afghanistan as well. Wow. Yeah. So Michael, take it away. I mean, I'll tell you what, if, if, being a writer has taught me anything it's taught me how to end on a high note so i think that's the high note anthony cheers cheers guys 